Getting split getting ready. Split getting ready. split ready. Getting split ready. For my wife. God rest her soul. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. Oh, no, no, she's not dead. <laughs> We're just divorced. Unscripted and honest discussions on divorce and separation. Getting split ready. What was I supposed to tell him? I divorced you from the show? Here's your hosts, Doug Katz and Mariah Pleasant. Hey, hello, everybody, and welcome to Getting Split Ready. Doing a little bit of a different format today, switching things up a little bit. In the studio with us today, we have Rachel Hernandez, founder and principal at Hernandez Hogue Legal Solutions, LLC. Alec Blaylock, an attorney for John F. Baker Law. Joyce Smarter, founder of Urban Balance. And Mark Macknick. Did I get that right? I was did. Mark Macknick, founder of Mark Macknick. Is it LLC? Is it just, where's Mark Macknick? It's under Mark Macknick CPA. Under Mark Macknick CPA. Got some great topics today. We're going to talk a little bit about pre and post nuptials. And I kept spelling it wrong when I kept putting it in. My, my spell checker kept, kept putting nuptials. Uh, parenting agreements. Talking a little bit intro on those. Counseling options to prevent divorce and, and some as you move into divorce. A little bit about taxes and divorce. And then we're going to answer some questions from our audience. So jumping right into segment one, which is brought to you by Heartland Family Mediators. Heartland Family Mediators, we aim to bring peace to families navigating the economic and emotional challenges of divorce. Divorce ends a marriage not a family. And we are here to help you take control and craft an agreement that is right for your family. You can access them at www.heartlandmediators.com. So our expert for this uh, portion is Rachel Hernandez. And as I said before, founder of Hernandez Hogue Legal Solutions, a fellow for the Collaborative Law Institute of Illinois, who practices family law, collaborative mediation, and first offender criminal advocacy. Graduate of Northern Illinois University, College of Law, and Western Illinois University which with a Bachelor of Science. If you want to know more about Rachel, you can go to KaneCountyFamilyLaw.com. I got that right, right? That's right. All right, so let's jump right in. Talking a little bit about pre- and post-nuptials. What's the difference? I mean, I kind of know because one's pre and one's post, but can you talk a little bit and lead in a little bit on that? Well, there are a number of differences. Uh, Premarital agreements, obviously. Most people are familiar with premarital agreements, right? They're for the rich and famous. Hollywood, right? Because they're only for rich people. (laughs) Not always. Yeah, they're they do that. The Miles Massey, Massey ironclad prenup. Exactly. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. So um, that seems to be the most common misconception when it comes to prenuptial agreements is that I don't have enough assets to warrant a prenuptial agreement. Um, of course, that's false, which we'll talk about a little bit. Uh, a postnuptial agreement, which spell check never can get that correct. So we're just simplifying that with uh, mid-marital agreements is what I like to refer to oh, I like that. A, okay. a post-nuptial yep. agreement as. That's not really the technical term, but I think it makes a lot more sense because that's a lot of what we do in the collaborative context is entering into mid-marital agreements with particular particularly with um, separating parents when there are children involved. What do you do with the home? How do you make those payments? And Doug, you and I have worked on uh, instances like this where one person is going to stay in the home and deciding how those expenses, whether it be the mortgage, a home equity line of credit, bills associated with the marital residence are divided between the parties and whether or not there's going to be uh, one of the parties living in another 
familial home or taking on a rental right. and how that plays out in terms of division of assets and debts later on and avoiding litigation really now, is, is it always about finances or is it just sometimes about like agreeing not to do something that could end up divorced like if somebody does something that bothers the other person is there ever an agreement like i'm not going to do that anymore good idea so like right now i have an agreement that my husband is going to oversee emptying the dishwasher really you know the children wow. emptying the dishwasher. there's a right way to do that there the is i might need a copy of that agreement <laughs> because i might need the you know some of your services later no, people so, don't start loading it right so here's the deal so with children mostly premarital agreements have to do with financial matters because typically people don't have children. Um, a mid-marital agreement or a post-nuptial agreement, if you will, um, can have to do with anything having to do with the marriage. Now, enforceability, because there's not a particular act that's applicable, like the premarital, it's a whole other technical conversation that we could have. But we have mid-marital agreements all the time. And I think part of this concept came to me as I was mediating for parents in developing their parenting plans, um, you know, I would say to them, this is really hard, you know, taking care of your children and figuring out what needs to happen and how you're going to get things done for your children and protect them and give them the best possible upbringing, life situation that they can have amid conflict is typically what I'm dealing with. Um, you know, how do you do that? And, and I've joked, my husband and I need a, a, an allocation of parental responsibilities and parenting time. And it got me to thinking that that is something that is needed. So is it for divorce world. prevention? It could be. I think it, it could, could be. be. So that's something that's not how we're using it currently. Right. right. But I think that that as we are evolving as a society and the way that we're doing things, the way that society has changed and the difference in career realms, you know, two parent working households, I think that it's something that will emerge right. as we go forward. So right now we're utilizing that in the context of temporary agreements with divorcing parties or separating parties. Now they don't always get divorced. And and I've seen it and this is how I developed this idea of a parenting plan for married people is that I've seen it where these people sit down and they come up with the plan of how they're going to get little Johnny to baseball and little Sally to her dance lessons. And it's just in coming to the table together that they realize, oh, we have to figure this out. It's not just your job or your job or Grandma Susie's job to do it. And if we have it written down and there's an expectation and everybody understands what that is, then we're doing a better job for our right. kids. Right. Well, I think if you look at it kind of like a business, right? There's the business of marriage, which is separate from the romantic notion. That's right. But no one would ever start a business like, oh, I like you. We have a lot of fun together. Let's start a business together right. with no plan, no funding, no allocation of responsibilities. You 
guys are in a partnership, right? Correct. Right. right. And so, you didn't say, wow, you're cute. No. Yes. No, that's not how I have part- a face for radio. That's I'm why sure I'm that's not how our partnership well, started. <laughs> right, right. Um, but if you look at it that way, then it makes sense. And if a business isn't working, if it's not profitable, right. what do you do? You restructure, you look at the bottom line, you you know hire someone that has strengths that maybe you don't have, but that's the same type of concept as what you're talking about, that's right? exactly right. So maybe you have, you know, oh, we need a nanny. Or, oh, we need a housekeeper. Or we need whatever, HelloFresh or whatever these services are, not to plug somebody who's not a sponsor. Maybe they will be next time. But, but, you know, we need a service because I'm busy, you're busy, and yet we want to provide the best for our kids and we want to give them the best of ourselves and not subject them to there's this conflict going on and little Susie doesn't make it to dance because we don't have our crap together now is it is only kids I mean I could see it being you know I see a lot of people who got divorced because of financial issues right the mortgage comes to me and it's just a mess their financial situation is a mess is it sometimes a mid-marital agreement where they're like and they're saying all right we're agreeing that we're going to pay off this credit card or we're going to do something to improve our financial situation. Absolutely. So that's a really great point. So most often that comes in the context of a premarital agreement where, Doug, you know, I'm sorry, but you had this huge debt from going to West Point and you come in and your wife obviously doesn't want to take on that debt. So you say, this is a non-marital debt and we're going to isolate that from our marital estate. Got it. So that's how it works in the context. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just saying, I think that works too with um, blended families when people are on their second, maybe third marriages and they have children or assets they want to go specifically to their children or in different percentages than may be the norm. Is that something that you're seeing a lot of growth with? That's far more common. People who are entering into a second marriage or a first marriage with a second marriage spouse, Mm -hmm. far more common do you see a premarital agreement because there are all these estate issues. So when when you combine your assets if that's what you decide to do and even if you don't decide to do that it's still considered a marital estate under the law of our you know of our code so when if something were to come up later you want to preserve those assets for say your children or set out how they're going to be divided that's the far more common thing um rachel does it kind of expand the divorce decree like at say if it was like a post you know divorce issue like you know talking about you know like education who's going to pay for it honestly i don't think so i think that it brings them to a settlement agreement far more quickly because they've talked through the issues. So Doug and I have worked on scenarios before, um, you know, one person is staying in a marital residence and the other person has decided to move on. There's case law out there that says if there's not a reason to leave the marital residence, then the other person could claim dissipation, which is a legal term. Mm -hmm. And the money that they spent then on that rental property, for example, could come out of their share of the marital estate. Well, if they agree ahead of time, look, we're not in a good situation right now. We need to be separated and we're agreeing to that. Then everybody's on the same page of what is happening. 
they're allocating those expenses accordingly and then it just makes it that much easier to get to the final marital settlement agreement because they have some things delineated already. Joyce, I want to ask you a question with this because you're, it seems like you both do kind of the same you're in the same piece, right? Where you're helping them on the legal side in a mid-marital agreement. A lot of times you might be helping them. I got to go over the screen here. You're helping them from a counseling perspective. How much overlap is there? Are there... Are there things that you do that are kind of like that to try and keep people together? Absolutely. I love hearing what Rachel's saying. I love the idea of the mid-marital agreement because it just sounds so much more positive than a post-nuptial. The post-nuptial, I think, is tied to prenuptial and people think of divorce. And the post-nuptial sometimes isn't, you know, it doesn't result in that. But you're facilitating conversations and communication about healthy boundaries and relationships and I love the discussion around parenting agreements and how we probably could all use those. So <laughs> I think we all need, it takes a village and we all need helpers and we're all helpers on you know the same team, helping couples communicate and live a better life. Alec, look like you had a question. It actually, um, is the uh, prenuptial agreement, is that really affected uh, by the fact that Illinois is not a community property state to where you know any property that's brought in prior to the marriage is not considered you know a marital property or unlike a state like Texas where everything's community property like you get married everything belongs so to so I have an example that illustrates that point I had a client who came into the marriage with a non-marital townhome they got married everything is you know wedded bliss and they purchase another home they slide that equity into the new home and everything is going great for five years, and then next thing you know, they're getting a divorce. And we come to the point in time where, how are we going to divide this asset? Well, yes, there's a non-marital contribution there, but it's commingled, because how do you differentiate what the value is unless you have a document in place, some agreement in place, and that's where you know either a prenup or a mid-marital agreement would come into play to protect that spouse for their non-marital contribution. Uh, but what if someone like didn't have like uh, that extra house that they brought into it, where they you know moved in the the equity into that house, and someone say a marriage that had virtually no assets to that. So like, nothing. Where, nothing. Like, where uh, are there still benefits to the to a prenup? A prenup. I think it depends. I think it more comes into play where there's a change in circumstances. So if you come into the marriage and both parties are similarly situated, so it depends. Every situation is different. You know, let's say that we get married and you make significantly more money than I do and I make a much lesser amount and that's our marriage. It's still all of those assets are marital property and all of that income is considered marital property. So it wouldn't necessarily be apportioned, as you know, because you do this type of work in the litigation context. Yes. It wouldn't be apportioned back in the way that we earned it. Oh, no. And and people <laughs> find that very unfair. But what happens, let's say you've got a married couple and somebody inherits like a, a, a huge amount of money, right? So Aunt Bessie dies and all of a sudden there's a million bucks in there or whatever. Do people come to you and say, hey, you know what? There's too much of a chance of commingling. We could make a mistake, right? From the from the tax side, I'm sure there's times people come to you and they're like, holy crap, why did you do that? Because now you screwed things up. Are there times when people say, 
we don't want a mistake. And if stuff gets commingled, we still want something that will protect both people's inheritance or whatever. Absolutely. So typically, if the person keeps that inheritance in a separate account that's in their name alone, that would be considered a non-marital asset, right? But what happens when I take the $100,000 that you know, Uncle Johnny left me and I put it into a marital residence. You know, I put in my dream kitchen. Then it's not so clear. So maybe at that point you want an agreement to say, this is my contribution by way of my inheritance from Uncle Johnny and I wanna protect that if something should later happen. The problem is, is that, yeah. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just was... No, um, the, was, that's a new format. Interrupt. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> interrupts each other. We like that. I, I think that's great that you do that. And I was going to ask about, because we're talking about assets, but I wonder if debt is also a consideration in the prenuptial agreements. Because in my practice, we hear of financial infidelity pretty often. Yeah. And you know, it's common for one partner to accrue a tremendous amount of debt. Maybe they have mm-hmm. a compulsive spending problem. Pro- Problem, um, Amazon Prime. That's a box a day from Amazon Prime. My daughter are not locked on. There's stuff coming from nowhere. Not a problem. My husband has five order. I mean, I think it absolutely can be. I've actually had some clients where that's a big fight of where who's going to pay the debt over like credit cards that was just in one party's name. But actually, going back to earlier, like with the with the assets, I actually did have a similar situation. with a client where they had a, to where one party had a trust fund uh, that was set up by their parents where uh, they specifically set it up as a gift for that. But there was a little bit of a, a like a kind of a mixer, like that's why we went to litigation over because um, they'd used the, the gift funds in that trust to pay, you know, off of a bunch of marital debt that accrued between the two. and. That's where we got to fight over that, and it's like I guess that would have been uh, good if uh, they had the prenuptial agreement. About yeah, that. for sure. What about hypothetical inheritances? What if I know that I have a loaded uncle and that money's probably coming down the pipeline? I mean, I'm Irish; I'd be a hundredth in line, so that would probably never happen for me. <laughs> but theoretically, if I know there's money coming, can you protect hypothetical inheritances? Well, there's really not a need to protect a hypothetical inheritance because the law is such that an inheritance unless it is commingled, would be considered a non-marital asset. However, it could still come into play when But that's state-specific, correct? That's Illinois-specific. Yes, uh, So that course. depends on where you live, if you're uh, not absolutely. listening from Illinois. 100%. Um, so if I was in a state where that may not be kept separate by law, can I, can I do a prenuptial for something that and, I don't then, actually have of yet? Of course, it would depend on the state in yeah. terms of their prenuptial agreement act as well, if yeah. they have one, which... So you can have it kind of say anything you want. Sure. Now, enforceability is a whole a whole other matter. We talked about the ironclad. Yeah. yeah. I do. I think I want to end on one question is, and this is kind of for everybody. How the heck do you do you do you address it? I mean, pre-marital, I think probably is easier than mid. But how do you address it? Going to a spouse and say, and, and I'm sure you see it in counseling. Hey, I want to have an agreement. <laughs> that either protects money or prevents you from doing something that pisses me off or whatever. How do you address it? Like, what's a good way to do it where you're not doing more damage than you're trying to prevent by having the agreement in the first place? 
Oh, don't say you don't trust them. <laughs> but, but, but That's a they, good choice they question. Assume that, right? Will they look and say, "Oh, you know, there you go." I mean, I think education is a huge part of this, which is part of why I thought it would be a great opportunity to come talk to sure. you today. Is just letting people understand and get some examples of how this plays out because you just don't think of it at the time, you know, prior to the marriage or even during. And the most common example with the mid-marital is one spouse is going to leave the workforce and give up their professional advancement in order to stay home with children, for example, and how that plays out in terms of retirement savings and potential earnings. So how do you do that? It's a conscious decision prior to the marriage or during the marriage when you're making a decision. If the person has a gambling problem and you say, look, I want you to get help, but you're going to have to agree that this is your debt and that you are going to do X, Y, and Z in order to remedy this problem so that you don't continue to waste our assets. So you kind of approach from a positive angle. Yeah, for Joyce, sure. is that what you see a lot? Absolutely. I think diplomacy is really important and approaching it from a place where you're expressing it from kindness and concern and care and saying, you know, basically, I love you. I care about our relationship. I care about our family. And this is really important to me for us to have these parameters in, in place. And, and boundaries, healthy boundaries don't mean that you don't trust someone. They're there so that you have a shared understanding. And I think Rachel brings up a really good point about addiction and how that impacts so many of us and so many families from a financial perspective. And I think that's an absolutely valid and appropriate time to say this is something that is necessary for our family and frankly for your wellness, that we have these boundaries in place. So it's interesting. I think a good closing point would be that family law is not always about divorce and counseling is not not always about divorce too, right? It's about milestones and life cycles. This has been a great segment. Again, you're listening to Getting Split Ready. Thanks. And if you are thinking about divorce, please visit splitready.com and take our free assessment. You can come through your divorce with your finances, your integrity, and your sanity intact. Be informed, ask questions, and be split ready.